back to the Decessory Group Podcast. This week, I'll be talking with my good friend, Kentucky State Representative Michael Lee Meredith. He's going to give us a preview of what to expect during the 2024 session of the Kentucky General Assembly. Before we dive into today's discussion, make sure you stay in the loop with the latest news by subscribing to our newsletter, Soki Economic Development and Business News. You can subscribe at our website, thedecessorygroup.com, and you can connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, X, and Instagram to stay engaged. And if you're enjoying the podcast, kindly share your thoughts by leaving a review on your preferred platform. As a local family-owned and operated public relations and consulting firm, the Decessory Group is here to help your company elevate its social media presence in 2024. Don't miss out on our special offer. For the first time, we're providing 20, a 25% discount on our standard social media package. You can find my contact information in the show notes, and you can take your company's social media strategy to the next level. The 2024 Kentucky General Assembly will convene on January 2nd in Frankfurt and will end no later than April 15th. So, thought it'd be a good idea to get a preview of what to expect. In this episode, I chatted with my friend and former colleague, State Representative Michael Lee Meredith, who represents parts of Warren and all of Edmondson County. Michael Lee was elected in 2011, and he chairs the Banking and Insurance Committee. He's an experienced legislator and dedicated public servant. With a strong commitment to his community, Michael Lee has been a tireless advocate for issues that matter most to the people of Kentucky. His extensive background in legislative matters and a passion for effective governance make him a key figure in shaping our state's policies. Here's my conversation with State Representative Michael Lee Meredith. Hi, Michael Lee. Thanks for being on the Decessory Group podcast. How you doing? Doing great, Jimmy D. Good to uh, see you. All right. Well, thanks. Um, better to be seen than viewed, right? That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's a dad joke, if you ever heard one. So uh, before we get started, I want to make sure we understand everything. We got the, the parameters set here. The longest-serving Republican House member from Warren County is? Jim DeCesare. Okay. But? 14 years, seven terms. Yeah, 14 years. So I have 14 years where I've represented Warren County in the Kentucky And I was the—I may have been the first Republican House member elected from Warren, but you would there know better. There had been a few, okay. but, but hadn't served very long. Be- before the Industrial Revolution? <laughs> right after the Civil War. Okay. Uh, so since 1900, I was the first Warren County Republican House member. I think that's right. All there right. might have been one in the early 1920s or something like that. No, there wasn't. Okay. He was, he was in the Senate. He knows. <laughs> Jim knows. So, so, there was not one that represented your district for sure. Yeah. And uh, so, anyhow, you're 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 in your fifth term or six. This is the seventh term. Okay, but a term and a half, two terms of mine were in a different district. And I didn't represent Warren County at the time. But how many total terms have you been? In the total house? terms seven. Seven. So you're at fourteen the end of years. This one. Okay, yep. which is like this month, next month, next year, next year, in year. next year. Yeah. See, I've been out of it so long now, I don't even remember anymore. You're the old hat. You're just <laughs> you're getting another into new things. I got now. out while I was young. That's what I'm saying. Still had hair at the time, right? Yeah, still had hair. All right, so I thought it'd be a good idea to get you on here to give us a preview of what to expect in the uh, 2024 legislative session. This is the long one. So key priorities or issues you hope to address or see addressed, knowing the budget is one of those key priorities. So so what's going to happen? Sure. You know, I think the budget is going to be the focus overall in the chamber this time, uh, in the House certainly, and, and in the Senate as well. Uh, I will say that I think for most of us who have been there any length of time whatsoever, 
uh, from a budgetary standpoint, the real priority is making sure that we budget to a point where we can make sure that we hit that next revenue trigger to lower the income tax rate, the individual income tax from four to three and a half. You know, we missed it per the fiscal year that, that closed out in July uh, this time. But I think there are some things that we can do, responsible budgeting, uh, making sure that non-governmental or necessary government expenditures uh, don't go over a certain amount without us being called back in to look at them. There are things that we can do to ensure that we hit that next trigger. Okay. Uh, that's going to be a big priority for those of us who have been around for a while. And, and what else? For me personally, um, this session, I have two major priorities that I'm working on. Uh, one of them is a veterans issue. And you know, you were there for the years that we worked on the veterans nursing home in Northern Warren County. That's been a priority for me. Right. Uh, all those years. But another thing that has popped up over the last couple of years as a real big issue is Kentucky has lost over 100 veterans a year to suicide over the last several years. And I have a gentleman in, up in the Edmondson County portion of the district who uh, works with the local Disabled American Veterans chapter and is involved with veterans groups at the state level, too. And he had testified about that issue. It's kind of his passion project issue. He had testified about that at the Interim Joint Committee this summer. And he and I have been working on a piece of legislation to try to just break down the barriers between the Cabinet for Health and Family Services and the Department of Veterans Affairs at the state level and, and some federal agencies to make sure that we have folks in those agencies who are knowledgeable and have a database ready when they have a veteran that reaches out to them that is experiencing the, the possibility of suicide. And getting them the help they need. And and I think Absolutely. that probably the disconnect, and you could correct me if I'm wrong here, is, is typically veterans issues are a federal issue. And, you know, the state will not, I'm not saying they won't, but typically don't get involved in veterans issues. So this is, this is kind of outside the box thinking. It is. And, you know, there are a lot of re resources out there for suicide prevention as well. But what a veteran experiences generally is yeah. different than the general public. Yeah. And so you need to find somebody who you can pair them with to get them the help that they need. That's a little different than the general population too. Yeah. Some, someone that understands the issues that veterans have gone through in the past and what they're going through now. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. And then, uh, obviously as the, uh, the chair of, uh, Banking and insurance, you're going to be overseeing a lot of different pieces of legislation uh, rolling through your committee. And that's another big area as far as priority for me that, that we're focusing on this time. You followed that committee for a long time. It's been really the insurance committee for many, many years. Right. Uh, we have experienced a, a consolidation in the banking industry across the state. We've gone from about 120 state chartered banks in Kentucky in the last three years to down to just about 98 or 99. Mm -hmm. We want to try to address that over the coming years. But what we found as we started looking at how to address that is we're working on a banking code that was created in the 1960s, updated somewhat in the 1990s, but not comprehensively. And so we're in the process right now of doing a comprehensive rewrite of our banking code. Hope to have that finished at least substantially on Friday with a, a meeting with the Bluegrass Bankers and the Kentucky Bankers, as well as the Department of Financial Institutions. Uh, on Friday. And then the other thing that we're working on, and this will be a, 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 a quick thing that we already know we're almost ready to, to, to get filed, is another banking issue. When folks get a mortgage, mm -hmm. how many times do they get a solicitation from some company they've never heard of 
uh, for a mortgage protection policy, a home warranty policy, something like that. Right. And the bank's name is on that document when it comes out. And so they think that it's coming from their bank. Right. And so it's consumer protection. We're going to come up with, with them having to put a disclosure on those documents that this is not coming from the bank. It's not something that you would trust the way you trust your bank. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and banks are wanting that. Consumers are wanting that protection. And we're probably also going to put some stuff in there for the real estate industry as well. There's a, a couple of companies that have come into the state recently that are trying to sign people up. They pay them $500, $1,000 to sign a real estate contract, a listing contract that lasts for 40 years. Oh, okay. And so somebody passes away, their yeah. children, their heirs go in to look at the process of, of selling that home after mom or dad or grandma or grandpa dies, and they find out when they get to the closing table, well, guess what? Somebody already has a listing contract, and you can't sell this property because they put a lien on your property to go with that listing contract. And so we're going to address that issue from a consumer protection standpoint, too. That's Those are probably my big priorities personally for this session. And, and of course, with the uh, the annual general fund budget, we're also going to have the road budget as well. Absolutely. And, and so we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But, uh, you know, this podcast kind of centers around economic development and business activities in South Central Kentucky, and we've seen a lot of activity over the last few years. Uh, specifically in our area. Any uh, legislative measures that you think can contribute to fostering more economic development, job creation, and job training? I know job training is a big one in itself, and then the other two are kind of like, uh, you know, what creates that, that need for job training. But we've had some really good growth over the years. So I don't know if there's much more we can do legislatively to, to bring more companies here, but what's your thoughts on that? You know, I think workforce development is the big issue now, and you know that as well as anybody does from your background um, and your work on the issues over the years. It was a, it was a priority when you were there. It, it's something we've not found the magic bullet on yet. Yeah, uh, I think we're going to have to continue to promote Kentucky as a place for people to move to. We need to grow our population by bringing in people from outside uh, the boundaries of the Commonwealth. That's one of the reasons that the priority of moving our income tax structure for individuals down is, is such a priority because it's a sales piece to get people to come here. Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to jump in here because I think even at the lower rate now, we're starting to see more people move into the area. Uh, I, you know, in, in my neighborhood, I see a lot of cars from Tennessee and California now. And I think when you think about when you combine not only I mean a, a small personal income or corporate income tax versus zero, but then on the, the flip side you're paying nine and ten percent sales tax. We we've become a real affordable place to live. Plus our our property tax rates are sort of locked in. We have one of the lowest property taxes in the country. If you look at the way that our property tax operates, though you look at the rates on our property tax, I think we were named by Forbes recently as one of the top 10 property tax states in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think the combination of the lower sales tax, the property tax being relatively low compared to, to peer states, and the lowering of the income tax is a part of it. I think the other part is we've done such a good job recruiting companies that there are jobs here. Yeah. And they're good jobs. Right. Uh, like you said in your neighborhood, I see it in southern Edmondson County every day because we're so close to the Transpark. The people that are moving to southern Edmondson County are people either moving out of Warren County there or they're moving here from Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, New York, Tennessee, California, all over. And yeah. that was something you never saw. Uh, when I was growing up there, or even in the last 10, 20 years, 
but you're really seeing a lot of in-migration right now. That's one thing that's a key, I think. I think the other thing is to continue to look at vocational education. Mm -hmm. We're doing that at the local level in the high schools uh, with career pathways and the expansion of facilities at a lot of our schools in the area. I know Grayson County is getting a new vocational school. Edmondson County is getting a new vocational school. Bowling Green is in the process of getting a new vocational school at Bowling Green Independent. Uh, a lot of those are happening in the area, plus extra funding for those programs in the schools as well. And, and I think the other thing that you're going to see, we've got a new president of the Kentucky Community and Technical College System right now. Somebody I've heard, heard of this fellow before. Somebody that you and I are very familiar <laughs> with, served in the House with, uh, yeah. Commissioner of Agriculture Ryan Quarles. Um, and I think he is going to bring... Uh, a new priority into that job as president of the system. He's going to gonna bring sure. a new perspective for sure because he's he's had boots on the ground in all 120 counties over Absolutely. the last eight years. So Absolutely, uh, and I think I think I think good things are happening in that career and technical space. Yeah, uh, because of all those things that are going on right now. You know, and I know uh, at least for the South Central Kentucky area, you know, we, we're kind of in a good spot. The training's there. It, we can always have more. We have the educational facilities with the university, with the, the community technical colleges, plus our our community technical schools that we have in, uh, uh, you know, in our in our K through 12 organizations. But, uh, it, it, you know, there are other parts, other parts of the states and some are really in the Brad area that that need that additional you know, touch. And I, I'm glad to see that some of these schools are coming to Grayson County and other areas as well because they can use it. And uh, I think there's a, there's a lot happening there. So we talked about economic development, job creation. Job creation's there. Uh, I mean, we have a low unemployment rate, which always means there's, there's a lot of jobs out there. I think the only thing we've got left in economic development is a strategy that tries to figure out how to fill the holes that we've not filled yet. How do you get... How do you get more jobs and more economic development, eastern and western Kentucky, I'll to sustain you, those I economies? I know the answer. <laughs> uh, the, the biggest thing that needs to happen for us to be more competitive, not only in in the east, the, the far you know far east and far west of Kentucky, uh, but for Kentucky overall, I, I, I truly believe as far as economic development initiatives, the state has done about all it can do. Until we take our tax code out of the Constitution and allow for more flexibility to, um, you, you know, provide incentives on a local level uh, through pilot programs and, and through uh, uh, tax abatement on property and things like that, uh, that that's the next step. Uh, you, you correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> no, probably a perfect segue into the discussion that, that you and I have had before about the, the need for constitutional change to change our local tax codes yeah. like we have changed our state tax code. Right. Uh, that's something that I've worked on for a long time, uh, continue to work on. I don't know if we're there just yet to be able to bring that all the way through the Senate process. I'm going to say uh, you're about another four years away. I think you're probably right. Yeah. Uh, it needs to be done, but it's not going to happen until we drag everybody in the right place. Yeah, and, and if, if for those that don't really understand what we're talking about, this inside baseball stuff, but our tax code is ingrained in the Constitution, so there's not a lot of flexibility on what the legislature can do. When was our Constitution written? 1891. Yeah, so it's it's a little dated. Uh, and then, you, you know, but we then we have... 
competing states around us that have more flexibility, especially on a local level. And, and I think most conservatives, uh, even even conservative Democrats, believe that, you know, as much government as possible be held at the, a local level and have and la- allowing local folks, you know, economic developers, if they want to, you know, uh, exempt property tax on something to get a huge company in. Uh, I think that's a tool they should be able to have. And it would be up to the local population to make that decision. But, you know, as as Michael Lee said, you know, I think it's it's a ways off. And I know you've been working on that issue for a couple of years, but um, it, it, it's going to take some education. It does take a lot of education. And, and there are a lot of people out there trying to do that education. You know, it's a anytime you bring up the word tax, it's a scary process. Yeah, it is. But if you, you know. But if you do it right, it makes a big difference. It does, and and you know the the end the end game is to keep uh, you know state operations functioning at a, an appropriate level. It's about broadening our tax base and and doing some of these things. You capture those that aren't necessarily playing by the rules. <laughs> so. The cash economy, the black market economy. Yeah, everybody pays sales tax. Yeah. Everybody pays sales tax. So anyhow, all right. I didn't mean for us to get off on that, but hey, some of these things happen organically. Let's talk about infrastructure. You know, it's important for our, our state's well-being. It's really important for this area. Uh, any thoughts on potential infrastructure projects or improvements uh, that should be a focus and how they might uh, impact mainly South Central Kentucky? I you, know the whole state's involved, but you know something that has become a priority for myself and Judge Gorman really over the last few months is trying to create a connection through a northern gateway. Uh, there's a lot of work being done on that. We've actually gotten some um, some estimates of what it would cost and, and trying to do some design work at the state level, hopefully get it, getting that funded in this road plan this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's some work being done locally uh, to try to do some, some, some legwork ahead of that also. To try to connect kind of the area, you know, the, the spur road that was built off I-65 through the Trans Park and back out to 31W is great. You know, people from Edmondson County who are coming to Bowling Green now have a really easy path to get down 31W onto the interstate and yeah. get anywhere in town they want to get to. But that isolated area, you know, Richardsville, Riverside, Hadley, and some of those areas still don't have a lot of connectivity back to that road. And so what we've been looking at is trying to see if we can design a road that would take off where the spur road out of the Trans Park comes back into 31W, cross 31W, lead out into the country through Richardsville and out into that area over towards, like I said, Hadley, and then connect back up to I-165 over there. It would be a huge benefit for farmers out in that part of the air, the world oh, yeah. who wouldn't have to come all the way into town, town to go to, to Owensboro. Go to Owensboro. <laughs> yeah. uh, save them 20 minutes or so on their trek. If, uh, and for those that don't know, uh, grain farmers like in the Richardsville area, they have to trek all the way to town to get on the Morgantown Road to catch the Natcher Parkway to go to Owensboro to sell their grain. Owensboro Grain, Gavilon, all those big granaries are out yep. that way. Uh, would save them a ton of time uh, in doing that. But it would also open up that area for development. It would open up that area for residential development mm-hmm. and even potentially industrial development. You know, we're running out of industrial sites in Warren County. Yeah, We're really running out of good housing sites in Warren County because the land that's left out there is some of the best production ground in the state for agricultural ground that's actually accessible. And so getting to some of those more 
or less accessible areas is important as we continue to grow as a community. That's one of the big priorities that we've all talked about. Obviously, we've got to continue to work on expanding and, and fixing our traffic patterns on Scottsville Road and Campbell Lane, yeah. Cemetery Road and places like that. And we're trying to take a piece at a time. Uh, obviously, you know how those those road funds go. There's there's plenty of people that want them and not near enough to go around. So we yeah. have to get a little piece at a time and just try to keep continuing to move the ball forward and look at one or two big projects that make a huge impact across the region. Yeah, big, uh, road projects are are so expensive and there there are needs everywhere and there's only so much money to go around. So you have to sort of they they prioritize and they uh, stage and you know they got a big Gantt chart and <laughs> everything's got a time so you know we might be able to start a loop around Bowling Green uh, a completed loop around Bowling Green but you know you have to start you have to take take that elephant one bite at a time absolutely so anyhow um, but but always a need for infrastructure improvement projects here I mean not only with roads but natural gas electricity water and sewer all these things because of the the humongous growth we've had in this region well you know another one that we don't have a lot of impact on at the state level but continues to be a huge discussion right now is the electric issue yeah. with us being a tva region mm-hmm. uh you know so much of that is handled at the federal level but we're we're on the brink of being at the top of what our electrical grid can handle here without additional transmission yeah. and without and additional generation. infrastructure <laughs> and the big part of that is a hundred million dollar line possibly from paradise down in muhlenberg county all the way to warren county dedicated to our region yeah but that's a seven or eight year project and so we've got to get the federal government moving on that as well the the utilities and i know all the local and state officials are talking with our federal officials on that as well trying to get that done but that's another big priority for all of us yeah so you know with all the growth that the southeast has seen with industries moving into that area uh it's taken a toll on our our electric all of our our uh, infrastructure for utilities natural gas is at capacity electricity's nearing capacity roads are at capacity water and sewers at capacity and, and all these upgrades you know take time planning and money and uh, a lot of folks are working on this stuff as we speak i know that uh, but you know the the electrical issue is one we got to keep an eye on because we do have some of the lowest electric rates in the in the country, and that's what in, encourages so many entities to come here, especially when you're in the metals industry. Oh yeah, <laughs> and you know the cost inflation in all these projects has been a huge thing over the last few yeah. years too. When you when you spec a job and and try to get infrastructure done four years in advance of actually putting it in, sometimes those costs have gone up one and a half times what they were when you when you planned that project. Right. And so coming back on the backside, that cost factor is another issue and the supply chain issue on those things. Yeah. So so the road plan is something you you'll be uh, engaged with, especially for this part of the area. And I know all of our local legislators get together and work on those regional projects and whatnot that that come out of uh, uh, recommendations from our uh, MPO, our Metropolitan Planning Organization, and other entities as well. So what about um, legislative initiatives related to education that we should be watching out for? And I'm, I want to preface this by saying that education is extremely important. It takes up, what, 60% of our budget nearly? Roughly. Uh, uh, it goes towards education. Yet there's always a lot of, of, of different folks out there wanting more of this, that, or the other. And there's only so much to go around and only so much that can be done. 
Uh, but what are some of the expectations when it comes to education this uh, legislative session? You know, I think there there was a, a task force over the summer about school safety. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that continues to be a topic uh, for education. That's going to take some funding probably to, to do something substantial and important on. Um, there's continued discussions. I don't know what will happen this session yet, but the possibility of a constitutional amendment on school choice and those kinds of things. Okay. Why? Uh, is a discussion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because at this point, again, you go back to our Constitution, it's pretty prescriptive about how education funds can be split, spent and they have to be spent in, on the public education system. Yeah. but And uh, so the, is, is that to say that, and I, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I guess I am, um, you know, there is some school ch- uh, choice legislation out there, charter school legislation, that, uh, but, but it runs through the local school system. Correct. And, and I, I may be wrong, but I think that that a local a, a, a school district within our region is going to have a vote soon on on something like that, or if, if they haven't already. I have not seen that yet, but okay. they may very well. Um, I, I think there's some potential there. Obviously, some of the things that have passed through the General Assembly in the last few years have been struck down as unconstitutional. Okay, and so they think that it might. To, to make any movement on that, it might take a constitutional amendment. Again, I don't know as of yet um, whether anything on that will move yet. I haven't seen a specific constitutional amendment on that issue for this session drafted yet, uh, but it's been a, a topic that's been discussed for about a year, you. year and a half since some of those Supreme Court rulings. And I heard that not too long, I guess a couple of weeks ago, someone, someone was mentioned there may be a constitutional amendment on that issue. And then I think the other thing that we're going to continue to talk about Again, career and technical, how do we continue to make that better? Yeah. Um, the issue of how do we catch up kids that got behind during the COVID pandemic because of the shutdowns yeah, studies, in the schools? So studies are showing there's, uh, especially with mathematics, um, that, that things are way behind. Absolutely. And so I think we'll continue to talk about, focus on how can we catch that back up. Um, that, that, Extra that's math for everybody. And then the other thing that I think is going to be probably a big topic this session, again, because there was a task force or an informal working group over the summer talking about this, is the reorganization of the college system and the community and technical college system and and how all that works together. Uh, The the Council on Post-Secondary Education brought in a consultant to look at the entire governance structure for our public universities and for KCTCS. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that's going to be a topic of discussion this time. Uh, The Senate president, I think, wanted to have a private or a public college uh, in southeastern Kentucky in his part of the state. That was a part of that study as well. I think it came back inconclusive uh, and further study needed. Uh, But I think those will be discussions, too, going into this session. Well, as a a WKU grad speaking to a WKU grad and one that's engineering this program and several other that are in the building, I think uh, my gut is telling me that a piece of legislation like that is going to be structured similar to some other states where they they have a a university system like the University of Tennessee, uh, where all the other universities are sort of under their umbrella. Let's not make that. Uh, any, uh, let's not do that. <laughs> That's not going to be my priority. I can assure you, yeah. as a Western grad, uh, you know the University of Kentucky does great work, but so does Western Kentucky University. Absolutely, um, and, and so do several of our other universities. And, and that autonomy, I think, is good because they can cater to what's going on in their region, and they can do what's best for the region and help the region grow by the university's programs. And and I think part of the. Um, the initiative several years back when we did, when I was there, we did the performance-based funding. That was, that's the reason for that is so 
each university can can hold its own. Now, I definitely think something needs to be done with Kentucky State. Uh, that could easily be a, a, you know put under the umbrella of another university. Uh, it may not be able to happen because, again, it's a land-grant university and there's there's a whole other set of issues there, but it, it's clearly not financially able to sustain itself. Uh, but as far as having a, a university system where we all report to one university, whoever it is. Now, if they want to, if it's WKU, that's, you know. We the, might be able to talk yeah, about we, that. Yeah, we'll talk about that. You know, the, <laughs> the thing that I go back to, and, and we've talked about economic development, we've talked about the success of our region and the growth of our region. And if you look at us isolated from the rest of the state, mm-hmm. and why are we so successful here? Yeah. We're successful because, one, we have a city and county that work together. Right. Two, we have legislators in a delegation and have for years here who have worked together for the common good of this this region. Even when it was mostly even both when, parties. Even when we had folks in both parties. Now we're pretty much isolated to Republicans these yeah. days. But when it was when it was bipartisan, we worked together for the best of the region. Um, we've got a chamber of commerce that does an outstanding job working with the city and county as well. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, and, and the key piece that most of these communities miss is a university that is so plugged in and works with the city, the county, the school systems at the local level, and the Chamber of Commerce to make all this successful. And we have the total package here because of that. Amen. Uh, And and that's what we talk a a lot about on this podcast. So last thing before we go, you know, in the current political climate, uh, collaboration is crucial, you know, and, and... and I know you, you're sort of an anomaly to some extent because you're able to work across party lines to ensure the legislative process remains productive. And, uh, you know, you're meeting the needs of, of the diverse populations that we have in our area. And uh, I appreciate that. But what are, what are just some of the things that, that you're working on that, you know, everybody – I know we talked about those bills, but why can't we have more, more common-sense folks in the legislature, not only at the, the – state level but the national level too where we have more collaboration and and um, consensus i'm not saying concessions but consensus where people can uh, sort of agree to a a total package of of an issue instead of just you know right now it just seems like we got a a bunch of bomb throwers out there you know people are just either way too far the left or way too far the right this is coming from jim DeCesare. i know you and i've had this (laughs) we've had this conversation but even when i came into the house 20 years almost 20 years ago it's a lot different now i mean it's totally different if i voted no on something i explained why and i gave i thought i gave good reasoning and and some simple solutions to correcting the issue but now it's it's these one issue segments of of the the population and it could be any issue uh but it's just like come on let's let's work together and come up with some some solutions when i got to frankfurt we did call you dr now i'm aware uh, and and <laughs> and you had been called that before i got there frankly but but again we all evolve and we all figure out what's the best thing to do I think what we've seen is national politics has gotten so ugly and has gotten so divisive and has gotten so polarized between the two sides that you see so many times a primary election ends up dragging someone to the to the far right or the far left right or they get beat um, and, and I think that hurts the process to some degree um, 
we're better when we can work together and try to build consensus and do what's right for the Commonwealth as a whole. We do have very broad and diverse populations across the Commonwealth. Even in this region. I mean, across the region. And I will say this now. You know, we're at a point in time in the House and the Senate with 80 Republican members in the House who would have believed that when you and I started yeah, in this? 30, 30 uh, something. <laughs> and 38, or 30 out of 38, 31 out of 38 senators now, Republicans, where you don't really have to work across the aisle if you don't want to, uh, because we've got enough people to, to pass anything and override any veto that the governor puts out there. Right. Uh, but I still think we get better products when we listen and can bring everybody into the process and try to work through things. I've always believed that. And I, I have to say this for, for Republicans. We have been very open to trying to work with the governor over the last few years. Mm-hmm. The governor was reelected clearly uh, in not what I would consider a landslide, but he got a strong reelection. It wasn't a landslide, but if you put it into perspective— People took the time out to fill in every one of those little boxes on the ballot. And they, they, they crossed party lines Absolutely. from the top of the ticket to the bottom of yeah. the ticket. And, and I think that tells you that people in Kentucky see some value in divided government. And I've always said that pundits at the national level who look at Kentucky and try to explain Kentucky politics to you yeah. are completely out in left field and have no idea how Kentucky works. Because we, for years— we're a Republican federal delegation. Mm-hmm. We voted for Republican presidential candidates, but we voted for state legislators who were Democrats, and we voted for governors who were Democrats. We have finally crossed the, that border of now having more registered Republicans in Kentucky and having a strong legislative delegation of Republicans in Kentucky uh, at the state level. But but it, it appears people still like some form of divided government in Kentucky based on the results of the last election. Um, what I'm hopeful of, and again, you know me, I like to work with everybody if we can. And the governor of I, the governor and I have have championed some of the same causes over the last several years. Right. Uh, maybe from a little different direction, but championed some of the same causes. But what I'm hopeful of is that the administration will open up and try to meet with legislative leaders and try to meet with members of the House and Senate of the opposing party uh, to to try to craft legislation and work through things to be a better Kentucky. The governor talks about that in his campaigns, Mm -hmm. but often we don't see that as those of us who are actually up there working on the issues. Uh, You know, I've been working on, like I said, some of these banking reform bills for the last year. Right. And, and we've put those bills out there to the departments under the governor to, to bring back feedback and to talk through those processes with us. And sometimes they'll talk to us, but they don't want to comment on the actual substance of the legislation because somebody higher up in the administration is telling them, no, we don't really want to share that right now, or we don't want to share that period. Yeah. And so I'm hopeful that some of that process will open up now that he's safe in a second term. Right. And he will try to work across the aisle because I think the House and the Senator are, are there and ready to meet him if he's willing to do that. And I think that's what the people of Kentucky want as well. I absolutely think that's the case. All right. I'll leave anything out. Got a big session ahead. Budget's going to be number one. You're working on a veterans bill. You're working on some banking uh, issues as well. Got uh, transportation budget, road funds coming up. Uh, plus, there's another, the uh, the legislative budget as well, which is much smaller. We don't need to get into all that. But 
uh, anything that I left out. No, I think that covers the bulk of it. Again, yeah. with a 60-day session, with a budget like we have, that's going to be the focus no matter what we look at the rest of the session. Yeah. I don't know that we take on a lot of huge, big-ticket, controversial issues other than that, but I think you will see a lot, of, a lot of talk and a lot of discussion around what the budget should look like, whether it becomes you know, the discussion about everybody wants money, yeah, uh, we've we've not had money most of the time that you and I served in the General Assembly. You have a rainy day fund now. We've got a rainy day fund for the first time really in history that's substantial. And, and, and that's not a fund to go out and just so everybody can hold their hand out and say, we need money for this, that, or the other. There's plenty of people that are doing that, yeah, though. Yeah, this is for, this is, you know, it's like the Dave Ramsey. This is your emergency fund. The emergency <laughs> fund. You know, we, we had one to two days of state uh state operations right. for years in Kentucky. Now we have a couple of months Yeah, uh, that if something were to happen, we could continue to operate at the level that we are. But it also provides us with the opportunity to invest in big economic development pro- projects or to help out when we have a tornado or a flood right. that we wouldn't have been able to do when we didn't have those kinds of reserves. And so those reserves are important. You know, there's going to be a lot of demand for that money that's out there. But again, we are going to have to hold the line and budget responsibly. Don't budget to everybody's wants. Budget to the needs of the Commonwealth and its citizens. Well said. Michael Lee Meredith, appreciate you being on the DeCesar Group podcast. Thanks, Jim. Thanks to Kentucky State Representative Michael Lee Meredith for providing an update on the 2024 legislative session. You can follow the General Assembly's activities. I'll put a link to the legislative website in the show notes. Keep listening for my conversations with economic development and business leaders in South Central Kentucky, and make sure to subscribe to the DeCesare Group podcast. Stay informed about the latest updates in economic development and business news by subscribing to our newsletter, Soki Economic Development and Business News, on our website, thedeCesareGroup.com. And if you're enjoying the DeCesare Group podcast, show your support by leaving a review on your preferred podcast platform. Connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, X, and Instagram to stay connected with the DeCesare Group as well. Today's program is brought to you by the DeCesare Group, a local family-owned public relations and consulting firm, and we do political consulting too. If you're looking to enhance your company's social media presence in 2024, contact me. Take advantage of a special opportunity. The DeCesare Group is offering a 25% discount on our standard social media package for the first time. You can find my contact information in the show notes and reach out to take advantage of this fantastic offer for your company or someone you know. Before we go, the engineer of the DeCesare Group podcast is my very own political consultant, Justin DeCesare. Our content contributors are Brooke Mattingly and Amy DeCesare. Until next time, I'm Jim DeCesare.